We're continuing uh, through John's gospel, as we've been doing since, since September. And um, John's gospel, chapter 7, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1058. We're starting in uh, verse 40, John 7, verse 40, page 1058. Jesus makes claims which demand ultimate allegiance and uh, ultimate loyalty. There's no neutral ground that Jesus leaves for us. And so here in this passage, uh, from verse 40 to the end of chapter 7, we see different responses to Jesus' claims. And we are challenged with how we're going to respond to his claims. So John 7, starting with verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Let's ask God to be with us now as we hear from him. Father, be with us now. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to understand from your word, to recognize the glory of Christ, to give you honor, O God, to know you, and to walk in your ways. May you be with us to that end, we pray, through Jesus our Lord. Amen. So Ezekiel Clay joined the Confederate Army. His mother heard about it in town, but she didn't believe it until she got home and found the note on his bed. And uh, he had just left the note. He took some blankets, he took some shirts, he took the brown mare, he took his father's best rifle, and he took all the gunpowder in the house. And, you know, the Civil War divided the nation. And even in neutral states like Kentucky, where the Clays lived, it drew a line right through towns, right through families. And so the Clay family was divided. Ezekiel's father, uh, B.J. Clay, was a legislator. So he was off in Frankfort, Kentucky, and he was pro-Union. He was pro-North, and now his son was a Confederate soldier. Um, I can read you uh, Ezekiel's note to his family. 
He dates it September 24, 1861. B.J. Clay and family, I leave for the army tonight. I do it for I believe I am doing right. I go of my own free will. If it turns out I do wrong, I beg forgiveness. Goodbye to you all. You will hear from me soon. Zeke. There was no neutral ground. And he made his decision. And he committed himself. Jesus doesn't leave us any neutral ground. He makes absolute claims. And he takes away any opportunity for us just to find a compromise. And he insists on complete allegiance. And so he divides people. Jesus divides, so choose sides. As we look through this passage, we see that Jesus divides. First, we we see out in the crowds that Jesus is dividing the crowds. And then we see that he's dividing the leaders from the followers. And then he's dividing leaders from leaders. So as we begin this passage here in verse 40, we're seeing the reaction to what Jesus has just said, what Mark just preached on last week. These, these words uh, just before our passage in John 7, verse 37, 38, Jesus making his ultimate claims. And he, he claims at the Feast of Tabernacles where people are praying for God's blessing to be poured out on them. He claims to be the source of that blessing. He says it this way, uh, John seven thirty seven. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus is saying, I am the source of the blessings that God's people seek. Come to me. And so uh, people have to deal with this. What do we do? So we walk out into the crowd and we listen to what people are saying. Verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. So Moses had spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that, that uh, because the people couldn't stand having God speak directly to them, God had said, I will raise up for you a prophet like Moses to speak to you. And of course, God raised up a succession of prophets and they spoke to the people and they mediated God's word to the people. But the people built up an expectation that someday there would be a special prophet who would come, like Moses. And really, that would be the next stage in in God's advancing of his program with his people. So there was an expectation that that there would be this prophet, this teacher who would come, uh, like a new Moses. So some said, this is the prophet. And others topped that, verse 41. Others said, he is the Christ. No, 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 no. Right now, right in our days, right in front of us, God is fulfilling his plan. This is the chosen one. This is the Messiah, the son of David. The kingdom is here. God has come to his people. And uh, so some of the people were listening to Jesus, and they were becoming gripped by what he said. And they were uh, giving in to his claims. They were accepting his claims but not all of them. Um, So others responded and said, you guys are too gullible. 
So, verse 40, uh, 41, uh, 41. How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. So, you know, Jerusalem is down here. We're in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, Bethlehem is like down where my little finger is. And Jerusalem is where my thumb is. And Galilee is way up here. So they're, they're thinking the Messiah has to be from, from where we are, from Bethlehem. He can't be from Galilee. But, you know, Galilee was really not the great place. That was the place of darkness. No, the Messiah can't be from Galilee. He has to be from Bethlehem, from the town of David. So, so that's a conundrum. The people are confused. Um, they're, they're right. You know, the, the scripture does say the Messiah will come from Galilee. Remember when the wise men came and they're, they're asking the king, uh, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Well, the king asked the, uh, the, scri- the, the teachers of the law, and the teachers of the law opened up the Bible, and they quoted uh, uh, from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Like a really, really old man. No, like an eternal man who's going to come the God-man. So yes, he should be coming from Bethlehem. That was the expectation. So they're right. Can't be Jesus, right? But I, I, you know, I think even the Sunday school kids here could have gone to Jerusalem that day and could have explained to, to these people what, what's the answer to this mystery. Because we, we've all heard the, the story. You know, we've all heard the Christmas story. We hear it every year. Uh, the king was wanting to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. And Joseph was warned in a dream, so he took his family and moved to Egypt where he was safe, out of the reach of the king. And then later on when that king was dead, he took his family and moved back, but he discovered it wasn't really even safe in J- Jerusalem area. So he moved up to a remote corner where no one would come looking for him in Galilee, in Nazareth. And so that's where Jesus was raised. So Jesus was from Bethlehem and from Galilee, and it's not such a mystery. But John doesn't explain that. John doesn't answer the question. He just leaves us with the problem. So how can he be from Galilee? You know, John knows that you're, you're smart people, and you can go look in Matthew and Luke, and you can read all about it. But what's really going on is that arguments are not going to help because this opposition is not something that can be solved by an explanation. But this is opposition from the heart. Um, What Jesus says is that these people hate him. Just look, look what happens next. We've got the people, it says, verse 43, the people are divided because of Jesus and some wanted to seize him but no one laid a hand on him. They wanted to seize him because they wanted to arrest him because they wanted to put him to death. And this is what the disciples had expected when they took off and went down to to Judah. Back at the beginning of chapter 7, when they were first getting ready to set off 
on this journey to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. The beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, uh, it explains that Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were wanting to take his life. And then Jesus explains the reason why they're after him. Verse 7, it's because they hate him. And there's no reasoning with it when they just hate you. So verse 7, it says, uh, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. When Jesus is present, it's very uncomfortable because Jesus puts his finger right where the sin is, right where the rebellion is, right where the God's substitutes are, and he demands our loyalty. So people hate Jesus. They don't want to reason. They don't really want answers. Jesus divides people, and they want to do away with them. They want to kill him. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to know the shape of the opposition that you're going to encounter. If you're going to be a representative of Jesus Christ, you're going to experience the kind of reaction that he experienced. And the way that he was treated is the way that you will be treated. So you need to know what kind of um, opposition this is and what shape it will take. And uh, the answer to that question, what shape will the opposition take, is it will take every conceivable shape. It will take all shapes, all shapes at once. Uh, so let me explain. The, the, a major theme, this question that they're arguing about here, about where is Jesus from, a major theme in the Gospel of John is where is Jesus from? And it's funny because the other Gospels talk about where he was born and they sort of explain where he's from. They talk about his family. They give genealogies. And John gives none of that. No stories about his birth, no stories about his childhood. The Gospel of John just says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is insistent on the fact that where Jesus comes from is from heaven. Jesus is from heaven. He's not from Bethlehem. He's not from Galilee. He's not from this family or that family. He's from heaven, and we need to accept him. And uh, so what happens uh, in, in this whole section is that people are upset, and they can't believe in Jesus because of where he comes from. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big debate. Where is Jesus from? And so it's, and it's all contradictory. What we just read, verse 42, they can't believe in Jesus because he's not from Bethlehem. But then in, uh, back in verse 27, they said they couldn't believe in Jesus because they know where he's from. And we're not supposed to know where the Messiah comes from. And later on, chapter 9, verse 29, the leaders say that they can't believe in Jesus because they do not know where he comes from. And here at the end of chapter 7, verse 52, the leaders are saying that they can't believe in Jesus because he's from Galilee. 
And they do know where he comes from. And back in Galilee, back in chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, they were saying they couldn't believe in him because they knew his father and mother. So wherever Jesus is from, people can't believe in him because that's where he's from or not from. And so, so you know, it's like this. If you're a follower of Jesus, people are biased against you, and they have a tendency, even though they, they're nice people, they're civil people, but they have a tendency to hate you because of what you represent. You make them uncomfortable, and you bring a challenge into their lives that they have to deal with. And so either they're going to feel that you're too much aligned with the establishment, too much aligned with business and power and the military, or you're too much of an outsider, you're too much of a separatist, you're too much of a countercultural person. You, maybe you're too, you're too argumentative. Christians are always too argumentative. Uh, Christians are such pushovers. They're such pushovers. You don't even, they don't even listen to an argument. They don't even argue. They just go along. Christians are, are so traditional. They're so tied up in tradition. Christians don't follow any of the traditions. They're so innovative. Christians are so mystical. They're, they don't, you know, pay attention to arguments and think things through. Christians are so rationalistic. They're not open-minded. You know, their minds aren't open to what God might do that's new. Christians are so exclusive. They're always drawing boundaries and shutting doors and drawing lines and excluding people. And then you explain the gospel to them and they say, it's got to be harder than this. I mean, anybody can come in. You guys have no limits. You have no lines. You're, you're not exclusive enough. Ah, oh, man. It, it, Christians are too pushy. So then you try to be laid back and don't be pushy. And they say, you know, if you really believed this stuff, you, you'd be a little more pushy. So l- let me just tell you, the shape of the opposition that you're going to experience is every shape. It'll come from every direction. And any stick will do to hit the gospel. Any argument will work fine as long as it's an argument against Jesus, as long as it's an argument against the gospel, as long as it's an argument that will let us remain in our own little bubble and not be confronted by these claims of Jesus that are so uncomfortable and demanding. Then it's a fine argument, and we're happy with it. And you're going to get all of them. You do get all of them. That's why you're laughing. When I got saved, I, I, I went home from college over... Thanksgiving, and I told my family about, actually, you know, I was reading the, reading the New Testament for the first time, just reading, you know, I started at the beginning, and I kept reading how people do. Start at the beginning, it's getting kind of repetitive, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So uh, then I, I left the, you know, the Bible around so people would see it, you know, and, and uh, so they saw it, they noticed, and it sort of came out, you know, Seth's gotten saved, Seth's got religion, and, uh, oh boy, so, uh, my brother, one of my brothers was so angry with me because I was going to become a simpering, sniveling, uh, you know, milk toast pushover Christian. And, uh, you know, he just thought I was going to ruin my life. So, yeah, after that, I uh, went back to, the, to my dorm, back, back to the dorm. My, one of my buddies, uh, you know, on the dorm floor, he, my old buddies, he came to me and he was... He was uh, so mad at me, so angry with me, because, you know, Christians are supposed to be nice. Christians are supposed to be generous. Christians are supposed to be helpful. And I wouldn't loan him money to deal drugs. <laughs> and I got in trouble because I'm so uncooperative and hard-nosed that I wouldn't, you know, 
switch my whole life around so my roommate could party uh, in our room. And I'm such a pushover and I'm such a milk toast that I let these Christians just tell me anything to do and everything to think and believe. Yeah, that's how it is. You get it both ways. You get it from both barrels. If you follow Jesus, you're a threat. So what do you do? How do you face this kind of opposition? Um, that's a good, a good challenge. You know, a guy who faced a lot of opposition, there's not, there's not much in this passage about explaining to us what to do, but uh, let's just flip over, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 12, uh, written by a guy who, who really faced a lot of, of opposition, all kinds of opposition. And he's counseling believers about how to stay out of trouble, how to stay out of fights, and how to present a good witness and a good testimony in a, in a world full of opposition. So, Romans 12. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1123. Romans 12, starting with verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, it's not always possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. You know, coals of shame. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So keep peace. Make peace. And uh, don't be surprised if they treat you the way they treated your master. Jesus divides. We're out in the crowds and we see he divides neighbor from neighbor. And then we step into the, the inner chambers, the chambers where the leaders gather, a, a cool space, a decorated space, plush. You can smell the fragrance of the, the leather parchment scrolls uh, used by those who are learned, those who have studied, those with education, those who have, made, who have attainments and who have gotten somewhere in life. We, we come now into the into the place where people with discernment and wisdom gather and consult over important issues for their society. And so we step into where the leaders and the Pharisees are meeting, and they're discouraged about what's happening among the crowds. Many in the crowds are being won over by Jesus. They're listening, and as they listen, something happens. And so these leaders and Pharisees are discouraged about this. And it becomes even more discouraging when the guards return with their report. So the temple guards had been sent out, back chapter 7, verse 32, had been sent out to arrest Jesus. This was their intention. This was their plan. But they weren't just supposed to bust through the crowd, push everybody aside, grab Jesus, and bring him in. Because they were sent to arrest Jesus, not to create a riot. So the temple guards were out there looking for an opportunity. Alert. Listening. Watching. 
paying attention and listening to Jesus. Oh, that's dangerous. So these are trained people. These are Levites. These are people who are committed to temple service. They have a calling. So they're, they're cut above your regular, ordinary people. They're not just the people of the land. Those commoners who, who don't know anything and who just, they can be led astray. But these are people with some sophistication. They've heard a lot of teaching in the temple. But they come back and the leaders ask them, why didn't you bring him in? And then they answer, verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does. They've become impressed. And so this is so difficult for the leaders and the Pharisees to hear. And so then they make this wonderful speech that just drips with so much pride, so much self-sufficiency, so much self-reliance, self-importance, that it's almost funny, but we wouldn't have laughed if we would have been standing there listening to it. Verse 47. You mean he has deceived you also? Don't you dare contradict us. So he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees, that's us, we're so important, we've made such strides, we've achieved so much, we're such big people, and people ought to pay attention to us. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No! You should only do what you see us doing. Stick with us. Follow us. We're the leaders. You're the followers. You see the division here that's taking place? The, the leaders are becoming more and more elitist, and they're distanced from their followers. There's a division taking place. No, none of us has believed in him, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, the disdain, dripping, they're so alienated from their followers. This mob that knows nothing of the law There's a curse on them. They despise them. Whew. Yeah. That was nice. Um, So the Pharisees and the leaders are saying, we are right. You know, I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. Don't try to think for yourself. I'll do that for you. Um, So they're just locked in. They're boxed into their view. This all started... Back in chapter 5, they made a a quick judgment back then, and they settled the matter. Back in chapter 5, Jesus healed a lame man, and he picked the wrong day to do it. He healed him on the Sabbath, and you see what he said to the lame man? He said, pick up your mat and walk, but it was the Sabbath, and carrying something on the Sabbath broke one of the rules that the Jews had made up, in order to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. So because Jesus broke one of the rules about the Sabbath, he didn't break the command not to work, but he broke a rule about the command not to work by telling the man, pick up a lame man, pick up your mat and walk. And he picks up his mat and walks. Well, Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. And that's a sin. And, you know, in the Old Testament, we stone people who broke the Sabbath command. So... You know, Jesus should be put to death. Well, that wasn't enough. They said, Jesus, how come you're doing this on the Sabbath? How come you're, you're healing on the Sabbath? How come you're working on the Sabbath? How come you're telling people to carry their mat on the Sabbath? And he says, my father is always working. 
And so I'm also working to this very day. And so uh, John 5, 19, for this reason they tried all the harder to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. They've been set on killing him since that time. And they're just continuing on with their practice. They've made up their minds and they're not going to veer from the course that they've chosen. Is this something that is only of historical interest? You see, there's a critique here, a critique of leaders. Is it only Jewish leaders who can be guilty of this kind of misuse of their leadership? Is it only those those leaders from the temple and back in Jerusalem, is it only something that happened in those days that people could abuse their leadership in that way and become so self-important and so enamored with their power? No, I think that John wants Christians and believers and church leaders to read this and tremble about getting caught in the same patterns, the same trap. It can happen with Christians too. And so Martin Luther had to stand before the leaders of the church at that time and say, I will not recant of anything that I've written unless you show me from the Bible that it is wrong. Because popes and councils have contradicted each other and contradicted themselves many times So you have to show me from the scripture where it says that I've said something wrong. So, um, yeah, the the authorities were putting themselves over God's word. Well, those are Catholics, yeah. We're Protestants. We don't have those problems. Yeah, during the Civil War, it was Protestant Christians who believed the Bible and who held to to all the doctrines that we value and cherish and by which we're saved, who upheld slavery in the South. And so there were divisions between the churches of the North and churches of the South. Every denomination across the lines, the Northern churches split off from the Southern churches over the issue of slavery, and those leaders in the Southern churches held to their line and considered the Northern churches wrong. Well, that's just because they're Southerners. I mean, obviously they're going to goof up like that. They, they did the same thing in South Africa. You know, the, the church for, for a long time upheld its policy of apartheid. Um, finally, they came around to repenting of it and, and seeing the error of it. But they persecuted those who resisted it. And finally, the Southern Baptists and the Southern Presbyterians and all of them, they've they've apologized and repented of the position that they took on race and on slavery. But it's a lesson. Such things can happen. Leaders can be like that. We have leaders today uh, in power pushing for, not in our fellowship, but pushing in, um, in, among Christian churches for the ordination of homosexual priests and homosexual bishops and, and conducting this. The same dynamics of authority and abuse of authority and the love of power are at work every time there's a church dispute and a church split because people start to rally together their power base 
and they start to organize themselves, and they split into factions and parties, and they demonize and accuse the other side. And uh, it's the same dynamic. We make up our mind about those other people, and we close our hearts to them. And um, we just listen to the talk inside the echo chamber, and we encourage ourselves that we're the ones who are in the right, and they're all in the wrong. How are we going to avoid this trap? I think, go back to the same chapter, Romans 12. And uh, again, Paul just writing about how to keep peace. He has some wonderful words on this subject right there. A verse that I didn't read. Romans 12, that's page 1123 again. Verse 16 Paul talks about how to stay out of this trap of abusive leadership or a verse that really applies to this situation. He says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You know, there's no one lower than the people in the group that we all hate. Be willing to associate with the people that we all hate. We don't all hate somebody, but you know what I'm you know how I'm talking. We all get together and somehow we all have a group think. And we all feel bad about a certain group, a certain type of people. Be willing to cross the line to go over and sit with them and listen. Call them up, get together, make a time and listen, and talk. And of course, you know, what you'll find out is that they're really all wrong, which of course you knew in the beginning, because the, the other side is always wrong. But you'll find out they actually have a point or two here, here or there that is, that is good for you to hear, and maybe some misconceptions that you can, you can clarify because they thought some terrible things that are not true at all, and you have to, you know, clear the air a little bit, and so reconciliation takes place. Cross the line. Go over to the other side. Go to those people that you're alienated from and make peace. Well, Jesus divides the, um, the neighbor from neighbor out in the crowds. He divides the leaders from the followers. And he divides leader from leader. So we continue on following the conversation. And we find that one of the leaders... Uh, actually uh, was not represented in the poll that they just took. They said, has any of the leaders or, or, or Pharisees believed in him? No! Um, <clears throat> except um, uh, maybe Nicodemus. Verse 50. We're back in uh, chapter 7, verse 50. Page 1059 there at the top. Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Oh, it's that dangerous thing again. Hearing Jesus. It's dangerous to hear him. But this is what Nicodemus says, is that our law requires that we give a full hearing, that we understand what a person is saying, that we hear and they understand what they're doing. And uh, the problem is that with Jesus, if you listen to what he's saying, 
and you look at what he's doing, those two parts form a powerful argument that works together because he's doing miraculous signs that show he is from God and he is saying that he is from God and he is demanding your allegiance and your faith. Uh, So, actually, Nicodemus knows where this is heading. Back in chapter 3, we read about the time that Nicodemus went to Jesus at night and spoke with him. And the first words out of his mouth, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher sent from God. For no one could do the miraculous signs that you perform unless God were with him. So Nicodemus knows where it's going to go if he does this full investigation. So the, the Pharisees are doing three things wrong here. The leaders are doing at least three, uh, mis, uh, three, three kinds of misconduct in, in the way that they're uh, leading. First, they've done an, uh, an incomplete and biased poll of the leadership. Has any of the leaders believed? No. Well, that's not so true. Secondly, they haven't done due diligence. They haven't done their fact-finding. So they didn't gather the information. Um, uh, so verse 51, that, that's what Nicodemus says. This, Our law does not condemn anyone without first hearing him. They haven't done that. And so first, there's an incomplete poll. Secondly, they haven't done due diligence. And thirdly, they've made a premature judgment. They've made a quick judgment, and they're not going back on it. They're not reviewing it. And so they just hammer down and countersink their judgment in verse 52. They reply to Nicodemus. So Nicodemus has the cheek to confront them, to challenge them about their process, and they reply, Are you from Galilee too? You've got to understand, that's an insult. Because Galilee isn't just another place. No, Galilee is that place where it's dark. Those people up there in Galilee, they're the rough types. They're no good people who come, you know, none of our circle come from Galilee. We don't find recruits from there. You know, Galilee is, is I mean, and, and then in Galilee, even the Galileans know that Nazareth is the worst of the worst. So, what, are, you know, are you from Galilee too? This is just an insult. You know, are you so biased that you're, you're speaking up for this guy just because you're also from Galilee? So you want to be like him? Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So they tell him to look into it. It's a little confusing. What does it mean? Look into what? So maybe look into it means look into, uh, look into Galilee. Look into Galilee, and, uh, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. If you go and you check out Galilee, you see what kind of a miserable uh, people these are. What, how how you know, spiritually deceived and twisted they are. How dark they are then you would never have suggested that a prophet might come from there. Or maybe what they mean is look into it, look into Scripture. Scour the Bible. See if you can find a verse that suggests that a prophet might come out of Galilee. And you'll find that there is no such verse. Maybe that's what they're saying. Whichever way they're saying it, they're just wrong. 
They're just wrong. So, you know, let's, let's try. Okay, he said, look through the Bible, you know, okay. Look through the Bible. See what it says about Galilee. It's a long book. Maybe you know, we're trying to talk about the future expectations, you know, the next steps of God's program with his people. Maybe we should start with the prophets. So the books of the prophets. The first book of the prophets is Isaiah. Oh, look at this, chapter 9. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 9? It mentions Galilee here. Galilee is mentioned six times in the Old Testament. You know, these days we use concordances. Uh, Galilee is mentioned six times in the Old Testament. And usually it's just kind of a list of cities, that sort of thing. And one time it says there's a prophet from Galilee named Jonah. But here's the sixth time, Isaiah chapter 9. You can find this on page 683 in the Pew Bible. And I just want to read the first seven verses. And it talks about one who will come from Galilee. And it's a familiar passage. We read it at Christmas. So, the first seven verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Oh, so Galilee is mentioned. What do you know? I guess something could come from Galilee. We didn't notice that verse when we said that. Sorry. Um, You know, John doesn't point it out either. He just leaves it to you. You know, there's, there's always a way to argue against Christ. So if we answer all your questions, you can still come up with more. So why bother? So John just kind of leaves it to you to go find that verse. For, leaves, leaves it to you to figure that out. What would happen if someone were able to walk into the finely decorated interior chamber of your heart and observe the councils that take place there? And hear the deliberations that you have with yourself in your own mind about Jesus. Would he find that you deal honestly and truthfully with the claims of Christ? Or do you just um, paper over the issue? Do you do due diligence? 
Do you do an honest poll of all your thoughts and all the evidence? You know, there are always going to be reasons to disbelieve. Um, some of us just like to use smoke screens. Do you use smoke screens? A smoke screen is, a, is an argument that keeps you from having to argue. It's like when you face the guard dogs, you throw out a piece of meat and all the dogs go running after it, and then you can go and commit whatever crime you want to, and the dogs won't pay attention to you. Do you use those kind of meat arguments, just throw them out there to keep the Christians occupied so you can go on your own way? The Bible is unreliable. Is it really? Do you really believe that? Can God not speak reliably? There can't be just one way. Why not? Uh, the Bible conflicts with science. Oh, does it really? Christianity is old-fashioned and repressive. There are always reasons not to believe. Are you just going to say, is this the way it is that you're saying, until all of your arguments have been answered, you won't believe? Until every single one of your arguments, and you still haven't thought of all your arguments yet. You need more years to think of them all, but eventually you'll think of all of them. So you just want the rest of your life to keep thinking of arguments and then you want all of them to be answered as you think them up. And then you forgot what the answer was to that other one, so you want to go back over that one again. And when all of your answers are satisfied, then you will believe. You know, the thing is, you can always find reasons not to believe. Um, why should we believe in Abraham Lincoln? Was he really the president of the United States? Is he really a historical figure? Did you meet him? How do you know? Have you, have you examined personally all of the artifacts and evidence? Can you prove that Abraham Lincoln was the president? I mean, just, it's just a conspiracy, this penny thing and the $5 bill and all that, all these monuments in Washington. It's a, consp- it's a hoax, a complete hoax. There was never any such man. So, yeah, you can believe that. How are we going to prove it to you? I mean, you have to accept testimony of witnesses, and, and uh, why should you believe witnesses? Well, take it further. Is your mother really your mother? <laughs> How do you know? Uh, I mean, well, I mean, there's so many other possibilities. It could be that some aliens have changed. I mean, they've, they've taken your mother and they've copied her and it's some other biological form from another planet that imitates your mother, just like in those science fiction. I saw Twilight Zone once. I mean, maybe she's a carefully designed robot. And she's not a human being at all. How do you know that she's your mother? How can you be sure? Well, this is kooky. It's just kooky and it's perverse. You shouldn't ask such questions. It's wrong. You should believe in your mother. And, uh, you know, there comes a point... When God comes to earth and talks about himself and introduces himself and speaks to us, that you have to be ready to just believe and not keep demanding more and more explanations. It's okay to ask questions. It's not wrong. Ask questions. But be ready to believe. Otherwise, there's no point asking the questions. Well, let's um, look at, um, at the, the summary here. We put Jesus on trial. But Jesus puts us on trial. Look back in John chapter 3. In verse 19. 
Jesus puts us on trial. And here's the verdict. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Jesus is the light. Open your eyes. Behold him. Listen to Jesus. Make that full exploration, that full investigation, that full examination of his words and of his teaching and of his deeds and of his actions. And open your mind and deal honestly with the Son of God who came in the flesh. And something happens when you listen to Jesus. Minds change. Hearts change. Lives change. Let's pray. Lord, would you be with us and empower us to think truthfully about Jesus, to think carefully, and to be open to the truth, however uncomfortable that may be. Help us not just to stick with the, the flock and go along with people and uh, follow the group think and be impressed with what people will think of us. But give us the wisdom, the grace to think about what's true and to seek the truth. And, O oh Lord, help us find it by your grace. And I pray this in the name of the Son of God. Amen.